Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Check out their catalog on evergreenpodcasts.com. Today's special episode is an interview with award-winning author Leanda Delisle. Born in Westminster, Delisle studied history at Oxford University. She has written a number of best-selling books, including After Elizabeth, The Death of Elizabeth and the Coming of King James, The Sisters Who Would Be Queen, Tudor, The Family Story, and White King. Today we are talking about her newest book, Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix Queen. Known in France as Henriette Marie, the French-born princess became Queen of England during one of its most tumultuous periods and played a major role in its civil war. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. It is a pleasure to have you. Your book, Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix Queen, is a fascinating read. It is truly incredible to read about this French woman who became a queen across the channel. What inspired you to write a book about Henrietta Maria? Well, um, I just did a book on Charles I, uh, the king who, of course, uh, lost his head. He was uh, executed after a trial uh, in England. I became fascinated by his wife, uh, Henrietta Maria, uh, who was a Bourbon princess. And um, I had to sort of <laughs> make sure she didn't she didn't inter- interrupt the biography of her husband too much. And uh, so uh, when I finished when I finished uh, White King, um, then um, I thought I've got to I've got to write a biography of obviously remarkable queen whose life um, was very interesting long before she met Charles and was very interesting you know long after he was executed. So. Um, she, she, there were there were many things I wanted to uh, write about. You mentioned how both of Henrietta's parents were oddities. Henri the Fourth was a former Protestant who converted to appease his subjects, while Marie de Medici was a foreigner. How did her unique family dynamics impact Henrietta? Well, I think she was very conscious that her father was a great sort of warrior king um, and she liked to remind people that uh, during the English Civil War and the British Civil Wars that she was, you know, the the daughter of this great warrior king and um, she was extremely brave and courageous and she would often say she wasn't going to retreat here or, um, or, 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 or run away. Um, and that she was a Henry IV's daughter, Oricat's daughter. That was one way he imp- he sort of, I suppose, influenced her. 
She was also very aware that, as you say, he was a Protestant who converted to Catholicism. Uh, but after that, he wanted to, and he united, helped unite France after the wars of religion. And he, he wanted the Bourbon dynasty to become the greatest dynasty in Europe. And that meant taking on uh, the, their rivals, the Habsburg dynasty, who were also Catholic. And to do this, he was uh, willing to um, make alliances with uh, Protestant nations, something not everyone in France approved of. And indeed, he was assassinated by a Catholic fanatic who disapproved of this. But Henrietta Maria subsequently saw her marriage to Charles, who was a Protestant king of a Protestant of Protestant kingdoms, um, in the same light as 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 being an example of a Franco-Protestant anti-Habsburg alliance. And she was quite anti-Habsburg for most of her uh, career as Queen of England and Scotland. So that's Ori's influence. And then her mother, Marie de Medici, I think influenced her in many ways. I mean, Marie de Medici was helped sort of kickstart the luxury goods market that uh, France is famous for. And um, Henrietta Maria also loved, you know, fashion and uh, luxury goods. But more than that, she was, she know, she saw what her mother was capable of in a man's world. I mean, women were not expected to rule over men. Um, but her mother did rule France after Henri's assassination as uh, regent of France. And uh, one of the reasons that women uh, weren't supposed to rule is that we were perceived as innately weak, morally weak, um, and easily corruptible. Um, and as an example of this is Eve. Eve in the Garden of Eden uh, was innately weak and was therefore seduced by Satan. And she then in turn seduced Adam uh, and made him, uh, encouraged him to disobey God. Um, and so obviously it's not a good example of a woman ruling a man. Um, but um, Marie de Medici taught Henrietta Maria about um, the importance of the second Eve um, in theology, who was uh, the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, uh, and who reigned as a queen of heaven. And uh, she would quote a theologian called uh, uh, Bonaventure, um, who would say that um, because she, the Virgin Mary was the mother of Christ, you know, when he was a child, she could, you know, um, talk to him as a mother would, tell him what to do, and and that it, it meant also that she had the ear of God the Father. And Marie de Medici interpreted this as meaning that she had as much right to guide her son, the king, Louis Thirteenth. um, as any male minister. And I, so I think that Henrietta Maria had a strong sense that women were capable of, of, of a great deal um, and that, that they had a right to their own opinions on things and a right to express those opinions, indeed. It certainly became important later on. France was going through some violent times during Henrietta Maria's childhood. Can you detail what was happening in the country, her upbringing, and how that may have impacted her? Um, gosh, yes. Um, well, there was... <laughs> I think the ones, not everyone liked um, having Marie de Medici as, as regent. Some of, the, some of the princes of the blood felt that they should be ruling France, not um, Marie de Medici. Um, and th she, um, 
she had a very unpopular uh, minister who's also a foreigner called Concini, um, who was eventually assassinated on the order of her son, Louis Thirteenth, who I think was 16 at the time. Um, now, interesting, what I find interesting about this relationship is that Marie de Medici had a very close friend uh, called Leonora, who was the wife of Concini. And if she had been a man, Leonora probably would have been her, her favourite and leading minister. But because she was a woman and her friend was a woman, this wasn't possible. And so she had this chap, Concini, um, as her leading minister instead. Um, and her friend, Leonora, said, you know, this is a disaster and Concini is a disaster and he's he's become far too big for his boots and it's all going to end badly, uh, which indeed it did. Um, but not only was Concini assassinated and um, Marie de' Medici was brief, was put for a time, well, not briefly, for several years under sort of house arrest. But poor old Leonora uh, was um, burned at the stake, um, supposedly for using witchcraft uh, to influence the Queen. And so Henrietta Maria was only kind of six years old at the time, but I think seeing her mother's, knowing that her mother's best, having her mother taken off to um, imprisonment for several years and and her, and her mother's best friend, who she saw sort of doing her hair nearly every day, um, burnt at the stake, must have had um, some, some, you know, would have suggested to her just how dangerous a world was the world that she was um, living in. But on the more positive side, her mother also um, introduced her to things like the theatre uh, and taught her. Uh, she was she was she was taught by the very best actors of the time how to perform on stage, because knowing that, of course, that as a royal princess, she would one day be acting on a sort of public stage. Um, and so that was also an important part of her life. Um, and. Uh, Yes. So those are some of the influences, I suppose, that she had in her childhood. And seeing her sisters, the other thing, of course, is she was the youngest of several children. And she saw her two elder sisters married off before her, sent abroad. Um, her elder sister, Elizabeth, I think, was 14 when she was married um, to the future King of Spain. And then her sister, Christina, was married at 13 uh, to the future um uh, Duke of Savoy. Um, and so she would have seen that and known that that was her likely fate as well at some point that she might well, she was hoping that being the youngest, she might might marry in France, but she would have known that it was possible that she would be uh, sent abroad. And the, the dangers that came with that, which was that in Spain, for example, her sister was treated very badly for a while, seen as an outsider, um, and um, as indeed Henrietta Maria would be when she came to England. So I suppose she had some sort of forewarning of her own fate in that. So this ties in perfectly with the next question. You go into great detail about the game of marriage politics and how Henrietta Maria was not Charles' first choice. How did the English prince and French princess come to marry? Charles's sister, uh, also called Elizabeth, confusingly, uh, known as the Winter Queen of Bohemia, um, was married to the Elector Palatine, and he had unfortunately decided to take on the Habsburgs uh, and accept the crown of Bohemia, which they believed was theirs by right. Um, and the result was that he not only lost Bohemia, but also uh, the Palatine. 
And um, Charles was desperate to help his brother-in-law, but to do this, the, the English and the British, the English and the Scots, they were different nations, but united under the same crown, did not have a standing army. And they needed a military alliance or, or, or a diplomatic alliance to, 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 to help his, his brother-in-law. So the first idea was to go to the Spanish, uh, the Spanish Habsburgs, arrange a marriage there and perhaps with the, with the Spanish Infanta and that the Spanish Habsburgs then might influence the uh, Austrian Habsburgs uh, to, to, um, you know, to, 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 to give up the Palatine. Um, but um, that didn't work out. Um, and so he then hoped to form a French alliance um, with Louis XIII, Henrietta Maria's brother. Um, and, the, you know, the marriage was part of was, was part was part of that. So that's what he wanted out of it. And the, and the French, what the French wanted out of it um, was that they hoped that the marriage would not only be useful to them because uh, the English were very important in the fact that they dominated the channel, so that was quite useful, uh, had an important navy, um, but also they hoped that it might mean that, the, that, that, that Charles I would lessen and perhaps eventually uh, stop the persecution of Catholics in Britain. What was her marriage to Charles like? Well, it sort of changed over time. So at first, it began rather well. It began rather badly, because unfortunately, just as she was arriving in England, the this 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 alliance, this military alliance with France, was already collapsing. And um, so she she arrived, and Charles had promised the French that he would lessen the persecution of Catholics. In Protestants in France at this time were not persecuted under the Edicts of Nantes. Both Catholics and Protestants were able to to um, practice their religion. And the French hoped that, the, that Charles would eventually, I suppose, introduce some sort of form of edicts and nonce in, in, in England and Scotland. Um, but he, he immediately sort of broke his promises and um, began actually renewing um, and even work making the harsher the, the persecution of Catholics as he became angrier with the French over this broken military alliance. And that obviously impacted on his marriage Henrietta Maria was only 15, but she was an extremely spirited 15-year-old and she expressed her anger in no uncertain terms. And there's a, one description of her when she hears there's a, a, a Protestant service is taking place in the house in which she's staying. And so she appears with her ladies in the middle of the sermon and starts stomping up and down the aisle of the church, you know, laughing and joking. And then later on, they find, they find the, um, the vicar sort of sitting in the garden behind a hedge and they sort of take out pistols and they fire them behind his back to give him a fright. So in a sort of childish teenage way, she sort of has her revenge. And more seriously, she refuses to take part in the Protestant coronation ceremony because Charles is um, ruining Catholics who are refusing to turn to, up to Protestant services. Uh, and so she's doing it really, I suppose, to show her solidarity with her co-religionists. But obviously this doesn't go, this is not going down well in her marriage. Um, and she detests his favourite, um, the Duke of Buckingham. So, anyways, that's all goes is is all a bit of a disaster. But, but fundamentally, these two young people, and she's much younger than Charles. She's only fifteen. He's twenty five. Um, they do want their marriage to work, and um, I think that is very important. And as she matures and grows up, 
bearing in mind, as I said, she was only 15 when she marries. By the time she's sort of 18, um, she and Charles are getting along much better and it becomes a very, very close and very successful and happy marriage, uh, which produces many children. So you touched on this a bit earlier, but this was a very tense time for Catholics. You note how Mary, Queen of Scots, had died a martyr, and Henrietta once joked how she would have the same fate. How did the new queen express her faith and interact with fellow Catholics at the time? First of all, um, she made absolutely sure that she attended mass as often as possible, certainly every certainly every you know every every week, if not every day, even when they were traveling through the country, she would find somewhere so that she could hear mass. So she wore her Catholicism on her sleeve, you might say, in that respect. She did her best to protect Catholics who, um, you know, were frequently imprisoned, um, um, for example. Um, and she did manage to improve the lot of Catholics. Certainly, by the 1630s, there were no, there was a there was a long period of many years when there were no executions for religion. But Charles continued to find Catholics. He never he never stopped persecuting them. There's a sort of myth that he did, but he never did. Um, but he he wasn't executing them, so they weren't actually being tortured to death on a public stage and castrated, which I suppose was some sort of advance. Um, but um, yeah, but so she was doing her best in that respect. She encouraged Charles to allow a, a papal envoy to come to England, which was quite extraordinary really, that she succeeded in doing that. And she managed to do that not because she was persuading Charles to become a Catholic, as some people believed and continue to believe quite wrongly. Um, Charles had no intention ever of becoming a Catholic. Um, she persuaded him, A, because the papal envoy was bringing lots of nice works of art with him, which which Charles liked. Um, and But more importantly, is that Charles was still hoping to do something, not for his brother-in-law, who by now had died, but for his, his nephew, um, who was still living in exile in The Hague, and he hoped that um, the Pope might be able to persuade the Habsburgs uh, to, 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 to give up um, his, his nephew's lands in Germany. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off. That again is French History 50 at factormeals.com slash French History 50. Sign up now. 
Your stomach will thank you later. King Charles' contentions with Parliament eventually led to the English Civil War. I think people would be surprised to discover how impactful Henrietta was, both during her temporary departure from England, her return, and her second exile. Can you explain why you call her the Generalissima? Yes, well... During the 1630s, which was the period of peace, sometimes known as the Hallison Days, uh, um, she it was said that she you know, trusted her husband in sort of everything. Um, by the sort of 1640s, when he'd lost uh, a war against his, the Scots, you know, it was, a, it was a rebellion because, of course, the Scots were, he was king of Scotland. She began to realise that, you know, her husband was not perhaps the most successful ruler in the history of all time. Um, and he'd lost a lot of his servants as they were arrested by Parliament, and so she began to give him advice. And one of the things she did was that in 1642, when it was clear that civil war was going to break out and that everyone believed that Charles was going to lose because he had no money and he had no arms and so forth, she went to Holland and she raised money and arms very successfully, and they basically saved his bacon and, and uh, ensured that he didn't lose the first major battle of the civil war. At Edge Hill in October 1642. Um, Parliament realised how useful she was to Charles um, and were determined to kill her. And um, so when she sailed back to England, they tried very, they, then their navy pursued her through the high seas. When she landed in England, um, they found out where she was staying on the quayside and they had her had her little cottage shelled and you have these incredible descriptions of her you know running under shell fire um, men killed yards from her and so forth um, but she um, survived that and then traveled to the north Charles was in Oxford in the south of England in the southwest she was went to the north um, with an army an army and she sat on the a council of war of the leading general leading royalist general in the north and her armies won several victories up there. And she also managed to personally persuade one of the three top parliamentary commanders of the North uh, to turn coat. She then, he then, Charles then insisted that she join him in Oxford, which she did. And she came south and she joked because she was, she had a great sense of humour. One of the things people don't realise about, she had a great sense of humour, Henrietta Mary. She was always cracking jokes. And anyway, one of the jokes she made on this stage, she said, wrote a letter to Charles and said, I'm coming south with my army. And, um, you know, Mr. Smith is in charge of the cavalry and Mr. Brown is in charge of the infantry. And I am the she generalissima in charge hmm. of the baggage. This was a joke, um, but um, it was taken very seriously. And uh, a parliament uh, took it out of context to say, look, you know, she's a terrible example of Eve. You know, there she is. She's ruling men. She's acting like a man, you know, acting as a general and so forth. And indeed she was, and they weren't entirely wrong, because she was a threat, and indeed her army took um, Bradford on its, um, on their, Burton on Trent, I'm sorry, on its way south um, in what was described as a bloody and desperate fight. Anyway, in Oxford, she was in Oxford um, that summer of 1643, and uh, she came very close with her armies to helping Charles win the Civil War that summer, and she was very anxious that he do win it that he would win it quickly because at, the, at this point it was just the civil war was confined to England um, and it, she was concerned that he needed to win it before the Scots 
joined the civil war on Parliament's side, and they were likely to do that because, um, you know, because they were uh, they were uh, Presbyterians and they were sympathetic to the sort of Puritans in Parliament. She advised Charles to take London. London was having all these riots. Um, there were a lot of there's a lot of anti-war feeling in London, uh, and but Charles did not take her advice. And this, she believed, was a turning point in the Civil War because the Scots then joined uh, in January 1644. And at that point, the numbers were against Charles. I think she was almost in a state of despair. And she, and she returned to France to try and, again, this this time, oh, of course, the first time she'd left England was for Holland. Uh, she returned to France, her homeland, because she hoped to persuade you know, her powerful Bourbon family to support Charles in the Civil War. And if she was unable to do that, then she hoped that she would be able to raise more money and arms, which is what indeed um, she did. And the Parliament, again, tried to kill her. She was crossing the Channel. And again, there's another amazing description of you know her, her, her ship under fire um, and her telling the captain that if, if they were boarded, that he should scuttle the ship and drown her rather than let her be captured because she believed that Charles would then be subject to blackmail. But anyway, but she managed to get to France. Uh, and um, she sort of supported him from from France until until you know he gave up until he essentially lost his wars as he'd lost every war he'd ever fought. Poor Charles. Um, and um, she then tried to persuade him to negotiate with his various captors, which he really wouldn't do, um, and supported him in a second civil war, which he lost. Um, and so she was in France at the time of his trial and execution in, in January 1649. Yes, if only the royal family had read your book, perhaps King Charles would have chosen a different name. One <laughs> might naturally suspect that after Charles' execution, the exiled widow would retreat to a convent to live out her last days. Yet you detail how this Phoenix Queen continued to impact politics in the 1650s until the Restoration. Can you give us some insights on her activities following the end of the English Civil War? Yes, well, she was completely devastated by her husband's execution. And uh, she really wanted, I think, to retreat, to retire to a convent. But she remembered that she had promised her husband that... um, you know, that she would support their children and her son, their son, their elder son, who was now Charles II, was in exile and she wanted to help him be restored to the throne. Uh, it seemed very unlikely that she was going to succeed um, because you know, Oliver Cromwell was by this stage the head of the sort of English Republic and um, seemed you know, very um, powerful um, in England. Um, but she did um, support him as uh, best as, as as best she could during the during the sort of next sort of ten years. There was a, a sort of infamous incident because I mean, Henrietta Maria is, is a, a, has been blamed for many things. Um, you know, it's said that she's returned Charles Catholic and caused the civil war, which, as I said, is completely untrue. Another things which is said is that she was a sort of cruel mother. And an example of this that's given uh, actually all her children devoted to her but anyway they quarreled but they were devoted to her but the example of this that is given is is her youngest child harry uh, who arrives in france aged about 14 because he's been a basically a prisoner of parliament throughout the civil war 
and uh, she tries to convert him to Catholicism. Um, and this is sort of described traditionally as a sort of act of terrible bigotry. And then when she doesn't succeed, she throws him out of the house, which is seen as a sort of act of sort of cruelty and stupidity. But, you know, life is complicated if you were a queen. And as she told her son, Charles II, the reason she did it was that, frankly, the Stuart cause looked pretty helpless, um, hopeless. And um, she didn't want Harry to suffer the sort of penury and powerlessness that seemed to be Charles II's lot. And so she said to Charles, if he becomes a Catholic, then um, he could marry a rich Catholic princess or, you know, I could ask the Pope to make him a cardinal. He'd be a prince of the church. Anyway, Harry has no intention of converting. Um, his last memory of his father is sitting, he's a little boy when he's about five, sitting on his father's lap, maybe the bone, but he's a little boy, sitting on his father's lap, just before his father is going, to, is going to be taken off to be executed. And his father looking at him in the face and saying, you know, they are going to cut off your father's head. Um, and saying to him that he wants him to obey his mother in all things except religion. And him, he also told Harry that he was dying for the Protestant Church of England. So Harry was not likely to sort of suddenly turn around and become a Catholic. But anyway, so whatever Henrietta Maria wanted, that wasn't going to happen. She expressed her anger at this indeed by throwing him out of the house. But this wasn't just sort of an act of kind of spite. It was the act of a woman who was Charles II's principal support in Europe, and she could not afford to be seen as weak and being disobeyed by one of your children, particularly a child in his early, in his early teens, would have made her look weak. And what it often isn't pointed out is that her sister-in-law, the Winter Queen, did exactly the same thing with two of her children, who was also an exile queen and was also a support for her son, um, did exactly the same thing with two of her children when they conversely converted from Protestantism to Catholicism, um, which she didn't like. She cut off relations with them. This was a political act, not an act of just sort of spite. And what was very tragic was that at the time of the Restoration, when after Cromwell died and the English decided they couldn't stand the Republic and they couldn't bear living under sort of Puritan rule, and they invited Charles II back, she wrote a letter saying, oh, hooray, you know, the whole family are going to be reunited and was obviously looking forward to being re reunited with Harry as well as her other children. And very tragically, he died shortly before this could happen. And uh, she's described just after, a couple of days after he arrives in England in uh, November uh, 1660. Uh, she's described by a famous diarist, Samuel Pepys, as dressed in black and looking very ordinary. And this description has always trotted out of her and it sort of said, yes. And it's, so she's, we're left thinking that she, she's now just a sort of miserable old crone, really. She's a miserable old crone. She failed to sort of turn England into a kind of Catholic autocracy or whatever people like to believe she wanted to do. Um, and she's now all miserable and she can't rejoice even in the success of her son, Charles II. But of course, the fact is that she's grieving her, her son, her younger son, who's just died. And, and what they don't do, because the, these things are so often examples of selective quotation, is what they don't, what these historians don't do, is then mention the same diarist, Samuel Pepys, 
a couple of years later in 1662, when Henrietta Maria is again, this is being described as the Phoenix Queen and is again a very powerful and influential figure in England. And he goes to the court and he describes it as, you know, merrier than that of the merry monarch Charles II. It's the gayest, it's the most glittering, it's the most glamorous court. It's her court, which she is, sent, she is at the centre. A major theme in your book is about Henrietta Maria's youth. She was the youngest of Marie de Medici's children. She was eight and a half years younger than her husband and became queen at 16. How did her age affect her outlook and abilities? She was only 15, in fact, um, when she married. Um, well, I think you know, <laughs> she was, in, in many respects, a, a typical teenager. She was extremely um, passionate um, and, it, and could be quite uh, sort of emotional. And there are, I think, some hilarious descriptions of her. There's one of her getting very angry with Charles, and there's a description of of them in bed together and she sort of plonks a sort of bit of paper on him and says, you know, I, I want to have, you know, this chap and this chap and this chap running my estates in England. And Charles says, no, you can't. They're French. I and mean, you we're not going to have any French people running you know, land in England. And she says, but, you know, my mother and I have already, we've already said to these people they can. And Charles says, well, no, you can't. Um, and then she completely loses her temper with him. And he describes this and she sort of shouts at him about how miserable she is and, you know, life is hell and it's all his fault. And, you know, he can't believe that someone is, you know, he's a king. He's, a, he's, a, he's um, you know, believes in divine right kingship. <laughs> he's got this teenage girl telling him that, you know, she's miserable and he's horrible and everything's his fault. And um, I that was quite, that's one of the things that always quite amuses me, that description, because it does... You can just imagine you know, someone having that kind of row with a 15-year-old today, um, except, of course, they wouldn't be married to them, at least one hopes not. She, so she became queen at an early age, and I, so, she, so she had a lot of experience, and England very much became her home. Um, and although she never forgot her French origins, far from it, she was very proud of them, and she... But she she also became much more English than I think people understand and allow. England was her people, and even after they you know, chopped off, even after they chopped off her husband's head, people in France, the French, noticed when she was in exile in France how she would never hear a bad word said about the English, and um, she would describe anything awful that had happened as 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 you know just sort of one of those things that could happen anywhere um, when the wrong people become in charge. You argue that Henrietta Maria was not a radical queen, but that she was caught up in radical times. One example you give is how she viewed her marriage with Charles as not necessarily out of the ordinary, as France allied with Protestants against the Habsburgs, yet the Protestants of England became increasingly zealous, executing Catholics, and fighting amongst themselves. Can you further explore the tumultuous world that Henrietta Maria was swept in? Yes, I think that she and the she and the average English Protestant had a very different perspective. So, from her perspective, she in France was surrounded by Catholics. She was obviously a Catholic. Um, the majority, vast majority, were Catholic, but also there was she had Protestants. She had Protestant friends. She had a Protestant doctor. 
um, and um, so forth, um, and the, and they weren't persecuted. Um, and so she saw no reason why this couldn't also be the case in England. And the um, Counter-Reformation in France uh, was very successful and was at this time, you know, largely done you know, by persuasion and so forth. And so she felt that there's no reason why she couldn't do that in England, set a good example and that people show them what the mass was like and that people would then convert. And she thought there's nothing wrong with any of that. And it all seemed like a good idea. And she thought, obviously, that the persecution of Catholics that was taking place in England was was bad and that she should do her best to try and alleviate the suffering and, if possible, persuade Charles not to persecute Catholics. So that was her perspective. Uh, the perspective of the English Protestants and the Scottish Protestants uh, was very different. So England had become people so England I suppose had broken with Rome under Henry VIII that's a hundred years earlier, a bit more than a hundred but a hundred years earlier. Um, um but hadn't and hadn't really become Protestant until the reign of Edward VI, Henry VIII's son, and then it had been very up and down. You know, that one minute it had been Catholic under Mary Tudor and then it had been Protestant again under Elizabeth. And it had taken a long time, really the whole of the reign of Elizabeth for the English to become Protestants, proper Protestants. And so there was a sense that it wasn't necessarily as deeply rooted and stable as it might be, um, although it was very distinctly a Protestant kingdom and the Catholics were a tiny minority by the time, you know, Charles I became king. And I think the English Protestants uh, felt very threatened because uh, the Reformation, they saw that the Reformation in Europe was being rolled back, not only by Habsburg armies, but also um, by the counter the, the, the by the fact that the Catholic Church had during the 16th century reformed itself and you know was converting Protestants and so Protestantism was being pushed back across Europe and they were understandably fearful that if Calvinism in particular collapsed in in Europe that um, they would be threatened in Britain and so they saw any Catholic influence or any anything Catholic as a threat, and so so one on one level, the idea that English Catholics should be a, a threat to English Protestants was absurd because they were such a tiny minority. On the other hand, it was it was also made it was it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a completely insane thought. I mean, they had reason for their fears. They had good reason for their fears when they looked at the international scene. They were aware that Henrietta Maria. It wasn't any old Catholic. She wasn't just Little Miss Catholic. I mean, she was the, the sister of the King of France. And Britain was not one of the two, was not one of the great powers. Uh, I mean, people like to sort of, with the British um, and possibly, and possibly, possibly Americans, I don't know. But certainly the British like to sort of have this sort of idea of Britain being a great power for much longer than it was. I mean, it wasn't a great power under Elizabeth I or the, or the early Stuarts. You know, France and Spain were the great powers. The Bourbons and the Habsburgs were the great powers, and um, she, you know her brother was 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 the King of France, and that was quite sort of intimidating, and 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 seemed potentially threatening. Your book starts out by presenting the Protestant narrative of Henrietta Maria as the conniving, Eve-like seductress who led King Charles to papism and caused the turmoil in England. 
you go a long way towards countering this narrative. What view do you think people should have of the French Queen of England? I think they should view her as a very remarkable woman. She was highly intelligent. Um, she was great fun. She'd be very good company. She'd be somebody you'd enjoy having d- dinner with. Um, well, someone I'd enjoy having dinner with anyway. I think you know she could be she she could be she was sort of gossipy and amusing and intelligent. Had interesting things to say. Um, she, she wasn't um, particular. She'd be had been quite badly well. She hadn't had a, she hadn't had a very sophisticated education on some levels, academic education. She had a very limited academic education, um, which I, I think was a source of great regret to her later. But she was certainly highly intelligent. She had great courage, I would say. Um, she was very loving, um, very passionately devoted to her husband, uh, to her children. She was capable of great kindness. People said to those to those who were um, to poor servants and ailing servants would be very nice them if they got a bit slow and were a bit hopeless. You know, she'd be very sort of kind to them and nice to them. But she could also be quite catty, um, which you know. So she wasn't she wasn't wandering around in a sort of cloud of saintliness. Very far from it. Um, she was a, a great support to her husband, and I think she would have made rather a good monarch. Not necessarily of England. I think being a Catholic monarch of England would have been a pretty <laughs> impossible burden. She would have, if she'd have been Queen of France. I mean, a re- Queen Regnant. You couldn't be a Queen Regnant of France. They didn't allow it. But she, I think, she would have been a very remarkable monarch. Well, I don't blame her for preferring France to England. No offense <laughs> to any of our English listeners. The book is Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix Queen. It is a fascinating read. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. And um, I hope some of you out there will enjoy the book. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.